Hi you guys, welcome back to another episode of Keeping It Real with Kilani. So last episode we had a solo episode with just me introducing you guys to myself, but this episode we have a special guest, someone who I think is very fitting for our first episode, considering what the podcast is about, and that is my dad. Hey, how's it going? They can't respond to you. <laughs> No, it's, uh... <laughs> if you can't tell, he, he works in this kind of industry. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm used to a little bit of indirection. Uh, so, uh, so welcome to uh, Kilani's podcast. This is so cool. Like, I get to be the first guest on this podcast. You know, it's, um, it's quite an honor. Thank you very much for, uh, like, how many kids do that, right? Invite their dad as the first guest. I think that is so cool. So thank you for inviting me on your podcast. Yeah, no problem. He's a little excited because um, we found out very recently that I'm turning into him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm about a better version, I would uh, say. <laughs> we'll see, version. we'll see. Yeah. Definitely yeah. The, discovering it a little younger, I think. Which, which, is, which is a really good thing. You know, when I was, when I was your age, uh, you know, at, at, at 20, um, I was in a, a very confused state in my life and... Um, um, you know, I, I don't know if you mentioned that I actually didn't get to listen to your first podcast, but, no. uh, but you know, when I was, when I was a teenager, I struggled with mental illness and, uh, with, uh, depression and anxiety. And, uh, so, you know, when I was, um, when I was uh, 20 years old, I was pretty screwed up. So, uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to see that you're, uh, you're managing that in such a constructive way. So, uh, Thanks. so way to go. Yeah. It's, uh. Absolutely, and, and and very inspiring to see because I get to I get to see that every single day. Thanks. So yeah. Yeah, yeah we were laughing because my mom's been listening to my podcast. I think she said three times, and sharing with all of her friends and and my dad was like, oh yeah, I should probably listen to that. But anyways, maybe he'll listen to this one since he's on it. <laughs> yeah, and I'll and I'll listen to the first one. Um, it, it's it's so cool because I get to hear you every single day. Right, you know, so yeah, uh, I'm always blabbering about this kind of stuff, so I'm sure you hear enough of it. Yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. I, uh, you know, it's it's like having my own little motivational speaker in the house, <laughs> you know, which is which is really cool. So um, you, it used to be just me, right, doing that with you, and now it's uh, you doing that with me too. So uh, so I'm blessed. Yeah, I've kind of become a channel for my dad's words of wisdom because, <laughs> as I mentioned, I'm becoming him. Yeah, I I don't know if you can really call it wisdom, but. Uh, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I've experienced in my life, and um, and I'm and I'm so glad that uh, that you're that you're taking it to heart and applying it in a constructive way, where you can really uh, do some good in this world, which is awesome. Thanks. Yeah, I know you've had a lot of adventures in your in your past careers, your entire life, but do you want to talk about what you do for a living now? Sure. Um, you know, so so as a as a career, I'm a, I'm an executive coach and. Um, and and what that actually means, I don't know if everybody's familiar with the with the term. Sometimes I get the question, "What is an executive coach exactly?" Basically, we're life executive coaches are like life coaches, but then for professionals and executives who you know work in leadership, they work in a corporate environment, and uh, for them to you know kind of practice being able to apply themselves and be the best version of themselves in that corporate environment, uh, they utilize coaches just like a. Um, 
uh, you know, like a Tiger Woods would, for example, use a coach to uh, help them, uh, you know, be the best uh, golfer that he could be or, you know, any other top level athlete, top level executives have coaches as well. And so I get to be a, a coach and, and see these amazing leaders, um, you know, apply themselves on a, on a daily basis and uh, and get to help them with some of my insights and um you know, and, and asking them questions. Uh, something I always say is, is I make a living of, of actually having no idea what's going on uh, because in, in executive coaching, you know, we're, we're always supposed to ask the right questions rather than having the right answers. Um, I, I believe that every single person, including every single one of you listening to this episode today, um, you, you're, you're born with an infinite amount of wisdom. It's in your body, it's in your mind, it's in your soul, uh, it's in your intuition, it's in the air, it's everywhere. And, um, and it's your ability to be able to access that, uh, that really kind of, you know, gives you that pathway um, you know that you can that you can go on in your life and and be the best version of yourself and so what i what I teach uh, executives is to kind of have how to tap into that and uh, and get the most out of themselves and I do that in a very holistic way um, The reason is, is because i i before I was an executive coach, I was actually in the fitness industry I used to be a uh, a personal trainer, so i don 't only uh, make my executives uh, perform better as as professionals but uh, but at the same time we're also working on their holistic health and wellness and uh, and in and kind of overall well-being as well uh, which makes them better leaders as well yeah and I know that becoming an executive coach was one of your later endeavors in life so what inspired you to get into becoming an executive coach Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, it it believe it or not, it actually happened by accident, uh, and it, it's kind of something I just naturally evolved into. So um, so so kind of t- telling you a little bit about the story is I actually started off my career um, in the military. So so after leaving high school, I I I left high high school not believing that I was smart enough to go to university. So um, so the next best bet was actually going to um, uh, to the military. And I served in the military for almost ten years, and um, and after leaving the military, um, I still had no clue what to do with my life. I um, I just had no direction whatsoever, no purpose. It was uh, it was a tough time. Um, a lot of it, of course, now that I know, a lot of it was driven driven because of my you know mental illness, but it was also driven by um, I, I believe that I'm 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 just one of those unique individuals, kind of like, you know, Kilani as well, uh, you know, who, um, you know, it's just very, very much in, you know, lives in, in a state of intuition and creativity. And so, you know, we don't necessarily follow the same path as everybody else. And so, so when I was young, um, you know, you're talking about the, you know, kind of like the early 1990s, there weren't a lot of job opportunities for me uh, because I just fell kind of outside of that realm. I was a bit of an outlier when it came down to, you know, corporate pursuits and things like that. And, and there was one place where I was happiest and that was uh, in, in, in the gym. Uh, you know, something that, um, that really helped me with my, my mental struggles was exercise. And, um, and I learned that in the military. Um, you know, I was, I was exposed to um, some vigorous uh, training and, uh, and that really helped me a lot. And so, so after the military, that was the, going back to the gym was kind of the one place where I felt at home. So, so one day I just kind of decided, hey, you know, since I feel so comfortable here, why don't, why don't I, you know, find a job in the fitness industry. And so I got my fitness certifications and all of that kind of stuff and started working in the fitness industry. And it was actually there 
where I had a, an amazing experience with somebody who was in a wheelchair. And, um, and they were in a wheelchair after a car accident. And the, the gym owner's uh, wife was actually a physiotherapist. And she asked me that, you know, between their sessions, if I could work with this uh, patient of hers. And, um, and it was actually during one of our sessions where he got to stand up out of his chair for the very first time. And uh, that was a, uh, an amazing experience for me, with, you know, just, just knowing that I was playing a small part in this person's kind of, you know, ability to overcome their challenges and, uh, and helping them, you know, just kind of become a little bit better. And, um, and it was like, you know, it was almost biblical, um, that experience that we have. I remember him, you know, pushing himself up out of his chair, standing up as if, as if it happened yesterday and, and seeing that happen, the amount of electricity that I felt in my body, the energy that I felt, I just knew right then and there that that's what I was meant to do in my life was to help people. And um, I just didn't know, you know, whether or not that was going to be as a fitness trainer forever, but I always knew that, you know, kind of helping people was, was something that was, um, was very important to me. And so, um, so after that, I decided to go back to school. I, I, I actually ended up finishing a degree. So I did a degree in, uh, in complementary medicine. And um, and in that period of time, I'd moved to Singapore. And, uh, and, and I was working in the fitness industry here as well. And, um, and when uh, um, actually at that point in time, I started working in the hospital system, uh, counseling people with, um, with chronic disease. So people with heart disease, uh, you know, cancer, all of those kind of things. And, um, and it was there where I really became fascinated by human behavior. Because what I noticed in a lot of these patients was that even though these people were diagnosed by doctors and, you know, told to change their diets and live differently, a lot of them didn't actually change their behaviors that much. Um, they were so stuck in these old habits of behaving a certain way. And that, of course, didn't help very much with, um, you know, with their recovery. And so, uh, so I became fascinated by that, which, uh, which drove me to go back to school again. And so I ended up um, doing a master's degree in neuroscience, and, um, but then specializing in leadership. And, um, and it, was, it was through that process that I then um, ended up working a lot with senior executives. And what I, what I learned from that was that, you know, senior executives are kind of a lot like athletes. You know, they're, they're, um, the demands of their, um, you know, kind of day-to-day -day performance is so high from a stress perspective. Um, there's a lot of, you know, um, a lot of demands from both the body and the mind. And, um, and so I figured that, you know, my, my expertise in, in terms of uh, the fitness, as well as my, my understanding of neuroscience and behavior would be a great way to help them be able to apply themselves better. And so I started that about 10 years ago. And uh, over the past uh, five years, I've, uh, I've written a book, I published a book about five years ago called Headstrong Performance, um, which actually covers that kind of whole in, in, in endeavor. And um, and and in the initial phases of my um, my coaching, I was I was initially brought in to really kind of work with people on a very holistic basis, um, you know, working on their resilience and doing all of that kind of stuff. But but over time, uh, over the past, I, I guess maybe three, four, five years, um, a lot of my work has actually become with very senior level executives, so C-suite executives, like CEOs and CFOs and those kind of people, um, and really helping them 
apply themselves better on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of making better decisions, being able to communicate better, um, to work with people better, to collaborate, to create new visions for the company, um, all of those kind of things. But, um, but the one appeal that they still all have is that, that holistic approach that I like to use, um, where it really becomes a mind-body kind of experience for them, rather than just strictly looking at uh, you know, just, just kind of the, the shoulders up type approach and just looking at the psychology, I look at the whole human being and, and you know, that seems to be a form of appeal. I think my favorite story about that journey is the whole idea of chasing possession versus chasing happiness and how a lot of people put them together. How you always said that when you worked a corporate job, you were driving, what was it, BMW? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so and that was in my um, in, in my period after I left the, the military. I was in uh, sales for a while because uh, I, I I happened to have a talent for um, talking to people, and um, and so I got I got hired into a sales job and um, you know ended up uh, you know kind of having a quite quite a nice sales job driving a you know company BMW and all of that kind of stuff. And it was um, it was what a lot of people would say you know a, a, a cushy job. The dream. The dream, yeah, what a lot of people chase, right? You know, because so, they see all these people in these, uh, in, in these, um, you know, beautiful cars driving around and stuff like that. And the funny thing was for me was uh, uh, it, it felt like a very empty experience. You know, it's, it, it, it wasn't me. You know, I, I, I went to work every single day not feeling like it was me. I wasn't connected with, with you know, kind of really what I was meant to do in this world and, uh, and came to this realization that, you know, simply doing things because, uh, you know, society kind of dictates maybe that, uh, you know, this is, this is the way we should be working or these are the positions that we should have that would then dictate happiness are so untrue. You know, I, I remember giving that all up and, um, you know, one day when I decided to, you know, join the fitness industry, I had to, I had to give up my company car. Um, and, uh, and actually it was to such a point I got, I got, uh, when I, when I told my boss about it, he actually fired me on the spot and, um, and I had to leave my car at, at the office at that point and take the bus home. And, and I remember sitting in the bus, just smiling from ear to ear, just feeling like I was, I was making the right pivot in my life um, and then and then when I was working as a fitness trainer I couldn't afford a car so I would actually ride my bike to to work and uh, you know of course I, I, I grew up in Holland so uh, you know everybody rides a bike in Holland but not in the winter you know and and uh, and, and sometimes winter can get pretty pretty uh, gnarly in, uh, in in Holland I remember riding to work one day uh, and I'm not kidding it's it's, it's still so, such a vivid memory um, riding to work and it was freezing cold it was in the morning and I had the biggest smile on my face I remember I had icicles coming out of my nose right and I looked over and and when I looked at people in the car they all looked so miserable they had these fancy cars and all of this kind of stuff but they just did not look happy and here I was sitting on my bicycle going to work and just you know icicles out of my nose and you know just big smile ear to ear just knowing that you know what I was doing was the right thing to do and that was a that was an important lesson for me is that you know that position doesn't equate happiness you know ha happiness is is you know determined by what we do not by what we have you know and um, and being able to pursue something that makes us happy is a, one of the greatest gifts that we can give ourselves yeah I think that's such an important story too especially talking about how you're smiling on the bike and then seeing all these miserable people people in their cars because 
everyone's always chasing like who can drive the nicest car who has the best job that pays the most but if you're not happy while doing it you can't enjoy it whether you're driving a not so nice car or driving a luxury car you know yeah exactly you know it's it's uh it's 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 I, I find it so so interesting you know j- just because um i've i've never been able to connect to that but uh but you know sometimes we become a slave of our possessions because you know that's what we think we need to do and then we just you know it, it becomes so difficult to live a full life you know and um and something so there was an interesting quote um that i was talking to somebody just a little while ago you know talking about you know the difference between knowledge and wisdom and um and 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 as we were having this conversation we kind of came to this understanding that that you know knowledge knowledge is created from studying right when you go to school and things like that and take courses etc cetera, etc cetera. and then there's learning and learning comes from practice right you know we're 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 learning every single day we're we're either learning behaviors that help us or we're learning behaviors that don't help us but either way we're practicing something right now you are practicing the art of listening i hope anyway as you're as you're listening to this um but then there's that third which is wisdom and and wisdom is acquired from living and really kind of from our experiences and what we've learned from those experiences and and when we get so caught up with um with with doing things that don't make us happy and really get caught up with uh living in that in that trap of of you know just pursuing possessions um we don't give ourselves an opportunity to learn from life and and that decreases our ability to acquire wisdom and and i and i believe that you know as as i'm growing older i'm i'm starting to uh, really appreciate wisdom a lot more and i think you know that's that's as a as an as a generation that's what we want to be passing on to our next generation you know knowledge can be easily acquired so can learning right just through self practice but wisdom wisdom needs to be inspired by really somebody else somebody else needs to be leading in terms of uh you know showing an example inspiring you to you know um live life in a in a different way so you can experience more and gain more of that wisdom so uh so i think that's you know that is one of the keys to happiness is is when we find ourselves in this path where where we can acquire all three i don't think just one of the three but i think when we can accumulate all three of them then we create create a sense of fulfillment and that sense of fulfillment is is ultimately um you know what what gives us that sense of of happiness and satisfaction uh you know that we're that we're living the life that um that we really want yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense i know you talked a little bit about you going into the military straight out of high school what was your experience with that you know it's a, it was really interesting so so when i when i left high school um i i was i was already a struggling teenager as as i mentioned i um you know i i struggled with with uh depression and anxiety and and the unfortunate thing is it's it's genetic so uh so so my mom my mom has depression um and uh um you know i i inherited that from her and and kilani you inherited it from me it's just kind of the way it goes but um so so when i when i graduated from high school 
I was already struggling a lot with a lot of internal turmoil um, and didn't really, you know, this is the early 1980s when I passed, when, when I graduated from high school and there weren't a lot of tools and skills available as there might be today, right? I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's easier today to have a conversation, especially as a man, um, you know, about, about not feeling well and, a, and from, a, from a mental perspective as where back then um, there, was, there was just the, oh, oh tough enough, toughen up and be a man type conversation that you would often hear. So, so I, thought, I thought that's what I needed to do was toughen up and be a man. And, and so when I, when I joined the military, that's actually what I tried to do. I tried to kind of be one of those macho military guys and, uh, and overcompensated tremendously for, um, you know, the low self-esteem and, and, you know, how horrible I was feeling. And, and the interesting thing that, that happened from that uh, was that I ended up gravitating towards uh, alcohol and drugs. Um, because I was, I was so, um, kind of living this, this life that, um, that really wasn't me. I was just uh, in, in pretend mode all the time that when, when I was, when I was drinking, um, I felt like it could be more myself and kind of let go. And, um, and so, and so I ended up self-medicating with, with alcohol and drugs to a point where I became a functional alcoholic. And, uh, and, and, and the reason why I say functional alcoholic is because I could still do my job. So I never, I never got fired from, you know, being an alcoholic um, until I got caught with alcohol, um, being in the military. Uh, and, um, and an interesting experience that I had in, in the Dutch military, luckily I was in the Dutch military, uh, when you get caught with, uh, with drugs or alcohol in the Dutch military, you don't nat naturally get fired. I actually got a lot of support from um, psychologists and, and people like that. Um, and then I uh, got sent to the Caribbean for a year um, to, uh, believe it or not, yes. Yeah, so, so I didn't get punished. I got sent to the Caribbean. That's not, not, not such a bad thing. Um, but when I was there, I actually got to uh, work with the, uh, with the Dutch Marines. And, uh, and this was during the times of Pablo Escobar, when, when he was transporting a lot of his cocaine um, through the Caribbean um, into the US. And so I got to be a part of the um, reconnaissance group because I was in naval intelligence. And so I was, um, I was supporting the, uh, both the US and the Dutch military in their um, reconnaissance and stuff like that. But, uh, but it was actually there when I was, when I was with the Marines um, and, and kind of on the strict schedule um, that that I I was training six hours a day physically and uh, and then of course no access to alcohol or anything like that and and with the help of you know the work that the psychologist did and stuff like that I, I I started to to connect better with myself in that process and it was actually then also that I that I came to a realization that it was time for me to leave the military that I couldn't I couldn't um, perform in the military faking who I was and I also knew that the type of person that that I felt I was um, you know wasn't the type that would probably be very welcome in in that kind of military macho uh, kind of environment so um, so I, I decided to um, to resign shortly after that but it was was a, it was actually a life-saving process and I and and I actually know a, a number of my friends who drank themselves to death so um, you know I could have I remember in one of my sessions with a psychologist, uh, you know, he, he as, as he was having a conversation with me about this, I came to a realization 
that um, that part of my drinking was actually my attempt to try to commit suicide as well. Um, I was just I was just choosing a very slow way of of doing that because I didn't want to be connected with the person who I was when I was sober, and um, and so I kind of always jokingly say is that you know it was it was my attempt to uh, commit suicide and I failed at that as well. You know so uh, so it was luckily I failed at that, but um, but it was a. Uh, it was an interesting revelation for me that, uh, you know, life had kind of um, really kind of, you know, sank that low for me. And it, it was for me that that ability to come out of that low, which has taken decades, by the way. And I'm still in a process of, of recovery, believe it or not. So, uh, um, but it's it's what I find that part of that recovery is is helping people. Uh, you know, when, when, you know, when I get to, when I get to help people and I get to see them you know, become better versions of themselves because I have some input in that. Um, you know, that's that's really where I I I flourish and I can really see where um, you know I have great value. You know, in in this world and uh, and what I'm what I'm supposed to do and being in contact with that is is the best thing ever. And and, and the funny thing is I've never craved a drink since. Uh, you know, since I kind of came to that realization of what I'm what I'm meant to do in this world. So. Uh, so yeah, quite a, quite an interesting process over the past twenty years. Yeah, that's interesting that you brought that up because I remember once when I saw a doctor and I told him that I wanted to see a therapist because you have to get a referral here. Um, he was like, "Oh, like what are you what are you studying in school?" He's just trying to make conversation. I was like, "Oh, I'm studying psychology. Like I'm thinking about going into therapy or counseling or something after I graduate." And he laughed and was like, "Oh, that's ironic." And in the moment, I was kind of taken aback because I was like, oh, why would you say that, you know? But now it's kind of funny because it's true that, like, most people who become successful in, in areas or careers where they help people are people who have struggled with those same things themselves. I, I, I think so. Um, you know, some of the best coaches and, and therapists that I know are people who have come from that place themselves. You almost need to, right? Because... Um, because that, that, that allows us to feel empathetic, uh, you know, for, for what other people might be, might be going through. And, you know, without, without that empathy, it becomes very difficult um, to be able to, you know, work with somebody and help them uh, overcome whatever that they need to overcome. Yeah. yeah. I also, I want to talk about the, the drug usage in terms of the government support that you mentioned in the military. Because mm -hmm. I noticed you said, like, thank God you were in the Dutch military where there's a lot more support with that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because I've always grown up with the North American mindset. I grew up at an American school. I now live in Canada. So the mindset on this side of the world is all about, oh, drugs are bad. Alcohol is bad. Like, if you have a problem, you're like broken you you know it's it's all bad whereas in the netherlands like most drugs are illegal i think even like they have heroin shops now where you can safely use heroin to help um heroin addicts move out of being addicted is that right um they're heroin yeah if, if i remember correctly because it's been a while since i've been in holland but but I, you know holland is 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 one of the most progressive countries in the world when it comes down to but so so, so some some other um, north scandinavian countries as well um but i i think they're 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 more kind of support centers for for heroin addicts and they and they can get uh it's, i think i think of the name is methadone um where they can uh it's it's kind of like a synthetic heroin that they mm -hmm. can get to um 
so that they don't get too ill because the problem with with heroin addicts is when they when they can't get heroin they become physically right. so very violently ill that they have to go to the hospital so um so it's just you know th there's a lot of support like that but and then I, th I think also mm -hmm. the safety with the contamination of the needles and stuff especially because mm -hmm. a lot of i think heroin users end up becoming homeless unfortunately because it's hard to function yep. while using that drug um, so then, of course, you know, if they're trying to use heroin, they're just going to use whatever needles they can get, which mostly have been shared by other people, which then there's a lot of room for transmission of diseases. So I think, you know, I'm just curious to see, like, because I know the, the addiction rate to most drugs is a lot lower in Europe than it is in countries that don't have as much open support. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I think, uh, number one, I, I think the... Um the, the 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 first big denominator is that where you know in in, in northern europe um we we don't consider you know drug addiction as a crime right it's not it's not a criminal enterprise being an addict it be, being an addict is is an illness right you know i mean you're 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 chemically dependent on on something that is not readily available and is just literally destroying your body it's destroying your brain it destroys your brain to a point where you can't make rational decisions anymore right and uh, you can't pay your rent you can't do you know you can't keep a job you can't do anything like that so um so a lot of the even a lot of the crimes that people that that you know um that drug addicts commit they they do so because the, because the impulse to have to get this drug is so big that they're otherwise they're going to feel like they're going to die so you know it becomes a life or death decision for them and it's it's such a tough process right you know and um and 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 the way i like to look at it personally i, I think for me um my my alcoholism wasn't what wasn't so much a chemical dependency i think um as where where it was was and and i, I and i dabbled in drugs as well um but for me, it wasn't so much chemical dependency as it was a relationship, you know. And uh, and that's that's the other thing. I, I think a lot of um, a lot of people who have some form of of addiction, it's a relationship with that um, with that substance, whatever it is. And that substance makes them a different version of themselves when they're using it. And that's what um, that's what becomes the attraction. Right, you know, and um, and we always talk about addiction being this chemical dependency, but actually, the majority of people aren't necessarily that chemically dependent. Um, that's actually a small percentage of 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 people who use drugs, right? You know, and it's it's often it's it's mentally driven, it's uh, you know emotional, it's um, you know, and they just don't have the tools, they don't have the ability to make other choices and to do things other because because if that if that's um, in their and kind of, and that's the way I was looking at it too. Is that if if they didn't have that substance to feel better or to feel different, they'd kill themselves, right? right? You know, so uh, it's it's either one or the other, and um, and that relationship is of course extremely toxic, and uh, and and it's that process that um, that kind of drives you to uh, to to just do very irresponsible things, you know, just just. For the sake of of being able to satisfy that that relationship, right? You know, and uh, and I think that's that's you know one of the one of the big issues is 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 um, if we can as a society as a global society, if we can learn to have different conversations about um, 
about things like drugs and about you know about the relationships that come with drugs. Can you, can you imagine how um, you know how, how the world would look different if every person who was, for example, addicted to alcohol was an alcoholic, right? And and I, I have a really good friend, and Dan, I'm going to give you a a shout out. So my friend Dan Duran is actually writing a phenomenal book right now, which is going to be released pretty soon. And he he contacted me kind of a couple of weeks ago, and Dan was like, Dan's a former alcoholic, and he's he's a police officer, a former police officer as well, and um, and he overcame his um, alcoholism through doing triathlons. And uh, so that's that's kind of what what his his you know book is on. And we were we were talking about this. I said, could you imagine, you know, how different the experience would be for every alcoholic out there, if they felt safe enough to just be able to step out in the world and just to be able to say, I'm an alcoholic and it's okay, right? You know, and and where where people around them would listen to that and be empathetic and give them a hug and to say, I'm here to support you. I love you. Right. Rather than judging them and saying, oh, you know, belittling people because, you know, they're addicted to a substance or, or whatever, or, or looking down on them because they're, they're, you know, apparent failures and things like that. It's those kind of stigmas that, um, that prevent societies from being able to heal. Right. And it's our ability to be able to, um, kind of move away from that. And the same counts with mental, mental health, right? You know, I think, uh, I think we're, we're making some amazing steps in, in society with, you know, mental health awareness and all of that kind of stuff too, is where, you know, we can just um, be a lot more open about how we feel, right? That we don't feel like we're, we, you know, are going to be judged by, um, by society or by our bosses or anybody where we can say, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to take a mental health day today. And taking a mental health day should be just as powerful as a, as a, as a, you know, as a sick day, for example, or, or, you know, we, we, we need to be able to have these natural conversations without feeling like we have to explain ourselves or do anything. If that can just be received with empathy and care and compassion, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the world is going to start operating in a very different way. And we, we are slowly but surely seeing a shift towards there's a greater level of awareness and tolerance and acceptance towards mental health, but it's still pretty far removed, right? I think there's a lot more work to be done. You know, and that's why I'm I'm so encouraged too to see that you're actually doing um, not just this podcast, but also with your work and everything like that. That you're um, you know really kind of you know next that next generation of people who can who can build more of that awareness and stuff like that, which is really cool. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually talking to my friend about that the other day because she has bipolar disorder, a mood disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, a whole bunch of stuff, and we were talking about how it's not taught in schools and that having those disorders are not a bad thing and that it doesn't make her any less human than anyone else. And she said, you know, when she was first diagnosed with a mood disorder, she, she was like, am I crazy? Like, does that mean I have multiple personalities or something? But that's not at all what it means. And just the fact that no one is educated on this kind of stuff, I think makes it more difficult for people to talk about because while depression and anxiety are becoming more frequently talked about, which is good, more like t i say it's probably tougher disorders like schizophrenia mood disorders bipolar disorder all those kinds of things are still not talked about and so when people say for example that they have bipolar disorder people like people use the term bipolar in a casual way to say like oh she's crazy you know so then if someone's like oh i have bipolar disorder then people are automatically like oh she's crazy stay away but she's not you know like it's you know
Um, let's let's expand that even more. I I think uh, I think society in in general does a pretty bad job of of uh, you know tolerating failure, right? You know, failure is not taught in schools anymore. You know, kids don't learn how to fail, and um, and and failure should be you know just as powerful as success. We need if we want to be successful, we need to understand what failure feels like and and understand that it's okay to fail. You know, and um, and rather rather than you know, kind of always talking about this failure is like, oh, I got an F, I failed for this subject, I failed for that, and and when we become afraid of failure, and then when we end up gravitating towards uh, some substance or, or or we we develop a mental illness or something like that, we start we start perceiving ourselves, and I I know I perceived myself this way for many years um, as a failure. And you know, being being a failure means that you know you're at you're at the bottom of society, and and there's nowhere else for you to go, um, you know. And and climbing up becomes a very difficult process. So um, so I think I think a lot of that has to do with this as well. Is is you know it's it's that it's okay to be imperfect, you know. And it's actually it should be encouraged to be imperfect because none of us. Let's be honest, none of us are perfect. Every single one of you that's listening to this right now. I know that you don't feel perfect, right? You know, and if you did, um, that's actually when there's probably some form of challenge. Um, but you know, most of us, we we um, you know, we we understand that we're not perfect beings. That there is some level or a, another. Um, you know, we've we've all had certain failures and things like that. So let's stop expecting you know, excellence from not just ourselves, but from each other. And how about we just start, you know, being more accepting towards the fact that, you know what, we can fail. But that failure doesn't mean that we can't be successful. Actually, on the contrary, right, is that when we when we then become um, comfortable with the idea that failure is okay, then we also become comfortable with trying new things and experiencing new things and challenging ourselves in a way that we've never been able to challenge ourselves before. You now, even if it means just putting that drink down that you were, you're planning to drink for yourself for that one day, or it could mean, you know, going into learning a new subject in school that has nothing to do with your degree program, uh, that just because you think it's interesting, or, um, you know, if it's, if it's a, a different job, you know, something that you find fascinating, whether it's, you know, you might be a corporate person and, and, and always had a dream of, you know, being a chef. So, you know, you know, go out and, and, you know, figure these things out. Um, and if we're, if we're not afraid of failing, you know, we're, we're, we're looking more for opportunity and possibility in life rather than failure and safety and things like that, that really are the things that, that hold us back. And I, and I believe that a lot of our mental challenges in, in, in life today um, and and also you know substance abuse and stuff is, is largely contributed to that to that one big thing is that it's okay to be imperfect you know and and so let's all just stop trying and let's stop expecting each other to be perfect right let's just let's just be okay with each other being imperfect and love each other anyway I think we can get pretty far yeah, I think the most important thing you taught me growing up is you would always say every time I, I would lose a game in any sport or do anything that, that I would consider a failure because, you know, kids get upset pretty easily anytime they don't win a game, even if it's like a board game. You always said um, you have to learn how to lose before you can win. And I think that hearing that probably like 8,000 times <laughs> in my childhood is what has allowed me to overcome so many things is that like 
no matter how many failures I go through, I'm like, there's going to be success eventually. So you just got to keep pushing through the failures and eventually you learn that the failures are the best times for learning and the best times for growth anyway. So those are kind of the best parts of the journey in the end. Exactly, because that's that's where wisdom lives. Yeah. Right? Wisdom doesn't live in, in the winning space. It, it comes it comes from learning about yourself and your losses. You know, and that's where that's where you become stronger and be you know and grow. So, you know, as as you so um, you know, so said so eloquently. Yeah, absolutely. I'm interested to hear also about your experience with martial arts because I know that that's been a big thing, I think, pretty much your whole life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And maybe how that's helped your mental health as well. Yeah, uh, f- fantastic. I, um, and and I, have to, I have to attribute this to my mom. So uh, in, in uh, look, I was, I think I was five years old when I, um, maybe six, uh, when, I, when I did my first karate lesson. And so you're talking about, you know, I, I was born in 1966. So, uh, so you know, you're talking about 19, 1971, 1972. So this is, this is, you know, Bruce Lee was still alive. So you can imagine. And, um, and back in those days, kids didn't practice martial arts in karate schools and things like that. It was an, it was an adult e- endeavor. And, um, and so, so my mom and my dad, uh, they actually put us three boys, because there were three boys in my family, they put the three of us in karate. And uh, um, it, was, it was the most interesting experience being with three boys in this, in this adult, you know, kind of group and adult class. Um, and, but the, the interesting thing about, um, about martial arts and about my, my training um, was, was that I, I had a knack, I always had a knack for the physicality of of martial arts but that actually wasn't so much the attraction for me um it was actually the the philosophical and um and and especially the the kind of the the buddhist philosophies that were behind the martial arts because back in the old days um they they came hand in hand in in you know learning martial arts you didn't you didn't just you know go and nowadays you go to a school and you're learning certain forms and things like that and you have to break a board and you get a belt color and you know all of that those things were different back in those days and and i and i early on i was introduced to different philosophies from different parts of the world and um, and it triggered something very interesting to me that stayed with me um, as I as I started growing up and as I became a teenager and as I was you know practicing martial arts as a teenager I started reading a lot more books on on Asian philosophy and on Buddhism um, you know things like that which which of course a lot of um, a lot of the philosophy um, you know was was really around acceptance. And, um, you know, being able to accept yourself and accept other people and to do all of that kind of stuff. And I think the physicality of the martial arts um, combined with the kind of just reading a lot about, you know, the philosophies of acceptance and and all of that kind of stuff, um, you know, really, really helped me through high school. Uh, You know, it's uh, some of my darkest moments, um, you know, when 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 I was I I remember having an episode of severe anxiety to a point where um, I was paralyzed and could not breathe um, and and those were often moments where where I, I took a sabbatical from physically practicing the martial arts and so when I would when I would then go back to it I, I would be able to manage myself a lot better and it's those those philosophies have really stayed with me uh, throughout most of my life um, and and you know and even still today uh, you know a lot of the work that I'm I'm still doing are still kind of deeply vested in in the philosophies that I was uh, 
uh, kind of have exposed myself to, and I've, I've traveled all around the world, um, you know, being in the military helped. And, and when I was in the military, I, I traveled around the world actually looking up martial arts teachers and masters and these kind of people and learning from them and speaking with them. And, um, you know, and, and that was, um, that was a really great experience, um, and 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 I guess it was pretty much an indicator because a lot of my a lot of my buddies, you know, would you know, of course, they were they were out drinking and doing all of these kind of things, and because I didn't want to, I didn't want to get involved in that whole drinking process anymore because this was kind of after that 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 um, I I'd, I'd recovered. I I really delved into um, you know kind of more the. Uh, you know the philosophy work and and all of that kind of stuff around the martial arts and that was real a real lifesaver for me and it prevented me from ever going back to to another drink which was uh, which was really powerful yeah so amazing stuff and if you've never practiced martial arts before it doesn't matter which martial art I'd I'd uh, I'd recommend giving it a try. Yes, definitely. I think it's interesting too. Do you think that your um, martial arts helped you move away from drinking not just because you were moving away from alcoholism but also because you didn't want it to interfere with your training and the way your body was progressing yeah you know that's 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 a really good question so so i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna answer that and it's kind of a two-fold answer as i as i'm th as i'm reflecting back um the the i the, there was a period of time where i practiced martial arts and i was drinking and because I was a functioning alcoholic, uh, you know, and there's, there's, when, when you're, when you're drinking, there are a lot of lies that, that I was telling myself. And, uh, and a lot of those lies were like, Hey, you know what, if I get a good workout and now I can drink more later and do, you know, and I can compensate better and, you know, and, um, you know, wake up earlier, get a workout in before, you know, before I start work. So nobody will really notice blah, 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 you know? And so it's, it's quite interesting how, how, um, you know, substance abuse kind of makes us rationalize differently. Um, but when when I had when I'd stopped drinking and and was practicing martial arts, I I felt that um, that whenever I had cravings to or or doubts or things like that, where where go back is is going back into into the philosophies and the learnings. Um, and and reading uh, a, a tremendous amount of reading that I that I was doing back in those days, and then with the physical practice that gave me a sense of wholeness, where where I didn't with with the, where the cravings would decrease, right to a to a point where it was manageable, and uh, and and I think that was that was an important factor, and I don't I don't think that that um, it would have been as easy if I wasn't practicing martial arts. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I've heard a lot of stories of people who struggle with similar kinds of things and it was their practice of taking care of their body or even moving into spirituality that allowed them to, to stop doing that because they learned that in order to achieve a higher level of spirituality or in order to become healthier, taking care of your body is, is a very important thing. Absolutely. And, yeah, and I think also like on top of being a personal trainer, I know you did bodybuilding for a little while mm -hmm. before I was born, Yep. but I'm interested to hear your story because I, my mom also, um, she was a bodybuilding or bikini competition. So she, well, she did the, the fitness competitions and the bikinis. Yeah. But right. I mean, the, the training is the same as bodybuilding, right? Right. Yeah. So I got yeah. to experience her experience and, and she, and like how, how she got through all of that and how she worked through it and the challenges and the the outcome and like the empowerment that comes with all of it but I never got to really hear your side of the story mm -hmm. 
Yeah, you know, I I, um, I I guess I don't talk about it too much, but yeah. So there was there was a period of time where where I really got into the to the bodybuilding. Uh, for me, the the appeal of it was um, the 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 mental challenge much more so than you know than the 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 phys- like the the physical appearance thing. That was that was not really. It's it's something that I knew was really hard to do. Um, you know, both both. Apart from apart from having a genetic predisposition to mental illness, um, both you and I also have a, the the obesity gene, right? So I, got, I got a lot of great genetics from my dad. Yeah, so you're welcome, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you poor thing, and um, and and the you know, and so so for me, especially you know during my alcohol days and things like that, managing weight has always been a challenge for me, and um, still still today. And I, I wanted, I wanted to be able to challenge myself to say you can do it. And so, um, so despite having you know the obesity gene uh, and all of that kind of stuff, committing to a bodybuilding competition just gave me that opportunity to um, to really go on the you know that very very strict dieting that otherwise you would just never be able to do. You need some level of commitment, right, to, to, to be able to do that and uh, get to that level of leanness is, is super important. And the other thing that, that, I, that I learned from it as well is, is um, I actually learned that as I, um, as I got leaner, right, I actually felt worse. Oh. And, um, and, and so, I, so in that process, I learned, for me anyway, right, so this is my, my experience, um, that that being being for me being a bodybuilder was actually a very unhealthy thing. Like because you know I was I was so cold, I was so dehydrated, I was you know all of those kind of things. Like I you know I I I, I took pride in being able to do triathlons and things like that. There's no way I, I wouldn't have been able to run one lap around a running track, right? Because I was I was just so tired and so you know fatigued. It's like there's no way that this can be healthy. So so what I learned from it is that there's a there's a toss up between what we want to do with our bodies and how we want our bodies to look. And in my case, I couldn't look amazing and do amazing things with my body. Uh, I had to pick either one or the other. And, um, and for me, um, the freedom of being able to move well and, um, and, and having that sense of, of satisfaction, knowing that even now I can, I can still go out for a run. I have, my, I have the same level of, you know, I'm 54 now, but I still have the same level of agility as, as I had when I was 20. I'm probably in better shape now, actually, than I, when I was 20 because I was drinking. Um, you know, but, uh, but I, you know, that for me is much more important. And that only works for me if I have a certain body fat percentage, if I, if I am not so ripped and lean and all of that. And so I had to, I learned that giving up on that dream, that kind of dream image that everybody goes up, that it's, that is not all that. Again, it's a possession thing. And for me, possessing that kind of body wasn't where I was supposed to be. And so I, I learned to let go of it and actually actually stopped bodybuilding. I, I continued working out and mm-hmm. continued staying healthy, but not with a completely no, with a completely different mindset and, and, and look, which is which has only been good for me. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually gonna ask about that too, because I've had a similar experience. Um, back when I was still training for beach volleyball, I had this idea that if I trained like a bodybuilder, I would perform better in beach, which is completely bad backwards because it's not all the same kind of sport both are very tough sports of course but they require different types of training and so I managed to get myself to like 18 percent body fat I mm-hmm. believe which is really mm-hmm. low for me and for females it's really low yes yeah. and yeah. I was like 
super excited because I looked in the mirror and I finally looked like how I quote unquote wanted to look like, you know, what all, um, what all the models on Instagram look like, you know, and then I would go out and try to play and I like couldn't move and it got to the point where my coach was asking me like, are you okay? <laughs> like you're not, you're not smiling at practice, you're not moving properly and to the point where like it just became not worth it and then that's when I kind of realized that having that so-called dream body just isn't really a dream anymore because you just feel terrible all the time and it's like hard to move yeah and it's just better to not essentially starve yourself no no it's uh, it's the difference between do you want to live life to its fullest or do you just want to look like you live life to its fullest right and right? I think the thing too is that doesn't mean that oh well if you want to be healthy you gotta you gotta eat like six six pizzas a day you know but it's like you can be healthy and not go to those extremes at the same time yeah exactly balance right it's all about balance i agree and you know just just making healthy choices and uh and eating well and exercising on a regular basis and doing all of those kind of things it's all so good for us but uh but you know the moment we take something to an extreme um you know that's that's when there is potential for things to become unhealthy and that that can even be with things like you know how we exercise how we diet and and all of that and that's and 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 i have to you know just make it make a you know disclose that this is my opinion right you know so um so i just find that uh that for me that just doesn't work i i find for me just having some level of balance and uh and allowing myself to be healthy and to be fit uh, but also allowing myself to you know have a fun meal with my family and you know to do all of those kind of things is equally important and if that means i'm going to have a few percent more body fat here and there i'd rather have that and and have great experiences with the people i love rather than giving up on all, all that but that is that is my opinion yeah it's definitely different per person but i think also another important point which is said a lot these days is not focusing on the number on the scale just one example that I have is when I was at what I would say is probably my physical peak when I was playing Division One. I, I weighed probably 150, 253 pounds. And now I'm still working out, I'm still training, but obviously not to that same extent. And now I weigh 137, which is the lightest I've been since I was 13 or 14, <laughs> maybe, you know, but it, it doesn't mean that I'm healthier than I was, you know, if anything, it's, it's the opposite because I was you had a lot of muscle yeah exactly yeah. i had so much muscle yeah exactly yeah no the scale the scale means nothing um it just it's just a number you know it's 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 ultimately it's how we feel and how we feel about ourselves and how we move and if you're in a body that um, can move extremely well um, it's a body that allows you to feel happy and it's a body that allows you to do whatever it is that we want you to do. It's a body that allows you to wake up in the morning, jumping out of bed with vitality and energy. Uh, you know that you have the body that you need to uh, be the best version of yourself in life. And regardless of what that number looks like on a scale, that really doesn't matter. And I know a lot of times in our society, it's a lot about uh, body positivity for women specifically we talk about how and I'm really glad that it's becoming that way because I know growing up it wasn't that way for me I was constantly looking at models like why don't I look like that I was very insecure about specifically the way my hips look which has now become one of my favorite parts of my body oh, cool. which is a good thing yeah. um, but I'm glad that, it, that people are starting to recognize more and more that people just do naturally look different and one body 
should not be perceived as better than another but I know that when it comes to guys it's not necessarily the same thing so I'm wondering if you if you have any insight on that yeah I, I, I do I, I really feel for um, for this generation as as they're growing up I think a, a lot more so than than we than when I was you know a kid um, you know and nowadays you know kids are almost like expected to have it all right you have to you have to have you have to have a billionaire's job right but you have to you have to have a body like it looks like you work out six hours a day right you know and you and, and of course there's there's always a toss-up you can't you know if you want if you want a billionaire's life you're gonna have to work your butt off right and um, there's no way that you're going to be able to spend six hours a day in the gym that's just not a reality and um, and so kids are constantly um, kind of growing up stuck in the middle and and never really feeling like they're fully successful because you know they're they're not fulfilling you know that image either on one side or the other so they're either they're either working out six hours a day and then broke because they can't you know because they they can't work or or they're they're working their butts off and you know and can't you know work out that amount that that is required so so there is there is a, a growing concern with that and it's called it's called body dysmorphia disorder and um, BDD for short, and you know BDD is 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 climbing tremendously in in young men, and um, you know just just you know not being happy with with the type of body that they have because they believe that they have to look like a superhero, right? Um, and then kind of uh, you know almost like Iron Man, right? They have to be the billionaire and have the superhero body because otherwise they're a failure, and it's quite sad actually. Yeah, it's yeah. uh, it's tough on them. I, I really feel for them. Absolutely, especially with the prevalence of media. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. So one last thing is I want to talk about spirituality a little mm -hmm. bit because I know like I wasn't raised religious. I don't think you were really. I know you went to a Catholic school, but your mom, which I think is really great, got you to read all of the different kinds of spiritual texts, mm -hmm. which I think is really cool. But I know that you're taking a course now that kind of combines the science aspect to like the cosmetological aspect, yep. which is really cool because those have always been opposing views, but now they're kind of being brought together, which I think is really important because spirituality was always seen as this like, you know, this. I don't even Fluffy. false false reality uh, kind of thing, but now thing now it's starting to be researched and parts of it even being backed by science, like energy transfer. Yeah, exactly. That's actually one thing I find fascinating because you know when I when I was doing my my neuroscience, of course, that's very science oriented, right? And and the thing about science, of course, is all, all about facts. It's about you know can you can you accumulate fact and 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 ultimately that's that's what knowledge is, right? So knowledge is is what what can we learn from these facts that we're but but the truth is 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 fact is limited because it's it's only really what we can see and what we can measure that um you know that becomes a fact and um and so uh, you know when we when we believe that that something is is a fact um but we're not willing to explore outside of that we can get stuck in in believing what we think we know right you know and and um as where where things like spirituality intuition um you know cosmology which is you know the you know the the energy around us in terms of you know how the universe connects everything with gravity and energy and all of that you know and how we are connected through energy um you know that's that's such a um such an important piece of you know even though we can't necessarily 
and it measure it from a from a factual science perspective there is there is you know we're, we're limited in our science by our ability to see and and so as we're developing technologies right that helps us be able to see more of the world and things like that we start realizing that there's way more to this you know world than we thought there was initially right and so the same is happening with regards to energy and all of that kind of stuff and and the concept of spirituality um you know which i find really fascinating and and i find that you know for me the one of the reasons what i think the big learning lessons that i'm learning from this program which is which is the new field ontological coaching um and and, and new field ontological coaching is all about understanding the um that that as observers of ourselves and as the world we we observe through our bodies as well as our emotions and and the language that we actually speak and um, and un understanding how our bodies, emotions, and language, and as being this this observer, dictates a lot of the realities that we see, and you know the uh, what what's you know what are we perceiving, and what are we opening ourselves to, and and I think for for if you look at like for example in corporations, right, a lot of companies are 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 built on data, right? So you know data drives the universe, but data is knowledge, and data is about kind of living in the knowing space. But you know things like intuition and stuff like that is is what where where vision is created, right? Dreams, things like that of like you know dreaming for a better future. That's not created in data, right. you know. And so and so um, so we we've learned as a as a as a society we've we've learned to become over reliant on on the data, but we haven't we haven't learned to rely on our intuition and things like that. Like if you if you go into a um, if you if you go into a school, for example, and you know the person the person says, oh, you know the teacher might might say, oh, have have you studied? Well, I haven't studied per se. I've kind of taken in the energy, and I'm kind of you know intuitively exploring it. They're gonna they're gonna think you're a slacker, right? You know, or or think about being a, a CEO in a company and a, and a board of directors, and you know the board of directors kind of say, well, how are things going? And and you know as a CEO, you can say, well, like, intuitively, I kind of feel like things are going well. They're gonna want to see data, and so. So, so a lot of a lot of the world that we kind of live in is is driven on data points on reference points on all of this kind of stuff and we 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 make assessments from those data points that we think are facts but the only reason why we we make we we think they're facts is because we're limited in the number of data points that we actually have we just don't know it right you know and so and so being able to separate all three in a, in a way for where where we can say hey listen this is this is my knowledge space this is my knowing space and this is what i know or i think i know and then what what does my feeling space say about that right and what is what is my sensing space right like in terms of the energy and all of that kind of stuff what inf information am i getting from that and 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 that's going to add way more context and it's going to add a ton more information to just that data right you know so so we can we can really kind of um, open ourselves and open our minds to to seeing the world and seeing people and seeing opportunities things like that and and such so many more broad areas rather than just kind of looking at the data and saying well this is this is these are the data points of my life this is this is the box that i fit in so therefore that's where i need to kind of keep going because that's what i know right, right? and and rather than going but that's not what i feel you know and that's that's what's important right i saw this really good video about that where the lady filming the video said 
you're never confused about what you need to do or what you want. She says your intuition always knows what you want. And for those of you who don't know what intuition is, it's it's basically a gut feeling. It's what you know deep down and you always know what that is. The confusion comes from you feeling like you need to do something for other people or for some external purpose. Yeah, and 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 I also think there's just a lack of trust. Yeah, right? there's like because because we're not taught to trust our intuition. Right. So uh, you know we because we don't value intuition in the same way. So um, so at that moment in time, you might intuitively have a gut feeling that says, "Hey, listen, I need to I need to turn right," but your data points, you know, and and, and what people are telling you and all is that now you should be turning left. Right. And, you might just decide to turn left because that's the safe way of doing it, right? So right. your intuition goes, no, turn right, turn right, right? So right, yeah. yeah, I've had it before too, and I'm sure a lot of you have had a similar experience where I I had a green light, I was about to turn left on an intersection, and then something just told me to slow down. So I was like, okay, I'll just slow down and like slowly go into intersection. And then as I slowed down and like was I stopped before the line, and some guy went through a red light through the intersection, I would have been in the middle of that if yeah. I had kept going so your intuition beautiful. always knows ahead of time exact beautiful that's, that's such a great example and 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 learning learning to trust that intuition and tapping into that is such a powerful component of of just be you know li- living a much more fulfilling life and 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 being able to see things in the world that we're otherwise just not able to see Right and beautiful things, right? That experience, you know, having amazing experiences that we otherwise just wouldn't be able to experience. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. Well, that's all the questions I have for today. But do you have anything else that you wanted to add or talk about? Um, no. I mean, you know, as 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 I mentioned, I'm I'm just so proud of what you are doing. Thanks. Um, and you know, I, I I as as a parent, I I couldn't be more happy with you know seeing you come into your own and uh, uh, you know pursuing your life and in, in the way that you want to do it without without you know kind of being influenced by you know maybe what you know societal norms might be or something you're, you're carving your own path and I, and for me um, you know we always we always talk about success right and um, and and you know a great definition of success um, uh, John Wooden, Dr., uh, Coach John Wooden, came up with this with this uh, definition, which is basically, um, you know, success is defined as as a feeling of satisfaction that you have, knowing that you did your best to be at your best at being your best, and um, and basically what that means is is you know when you, when you can just commit fully to to you know just going after being at your best and being your best you're gonna you're gonna have that sense of fulfillment but where where i think what what i really appreciate about you is that you're not following the definition of success that's written by other people you're writing your own definition of success whatever whatever that deficient definition might end up being doesn't matter right what matters is that you that you've you you have that courage to be able to do that and i really admire that in you so uh so yeah just keep keep up the good fight keep doing what you're doing keep kicking butt and uh and i'm i'm just gonna you know just always be proud of being your dad and and being able to just what you do what you do and hey maybe one day we can work together because you know as your your coach i'd love to i'd love to be able to partner up and you know learn from you as well you know because you have so much wisdom to offer this world and uh and and by the way so do all the listeners as well because we have infinite amounts of wisdom we just have to learn to access it and 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 you know what i really like about you kenani is is how 
Um, and you've always been that way. I mean, I, I remember you being two years old and, and just having this amazing wisdom about you. And I just, just had no idea where that came from. I just went, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like, like I, was, I was that smart, you know? And, uh, and, and so, and, but that you're actually tapping into that now and really kind of applying it. It's, it's, it's very cool. So, yeah. Thanks. Keep, keep it up. And thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast, too. Love it. Anytime. <laughs> but if you want to, like, tell people Graham, Facebook, oh, like whatever, oh, oh, okay. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was so cute. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I never, I never really kind of, you know, do those things, but I probably should, right? So, yes. um, so yeah, so, so if you want to, if you want to connect with me with regards to coaching, uh, one of the easiest way of do, doing that is just uh, look up my, my name, Marcel Dana. So my name is Marcel and my surname is the same as Kinani's. Uh, MarcelDana.com is my website. Can you just spell the name? Yeah, it's M-A-R-C-E-L and then D for Delta, A-A-N-E. And uh, um, Kilani Dana uh, is Kilani's name. Marcel Dana is my name. And uh, MarcelDana.com is my website. So uh, just look me up and uh, you can contact me through there. That's the easiest way of doing it. Or contact me by email at Marcel at MarcelDana.com. Um, and uh, I'm happy to, to uh, help you out in any way that, uh, that we need to if you have any questions. Yeah, and if you want to connect with me, my Instagram is Kilani Dana, K-I-L-A-N-I-D-A-A-N-E, K-I-L-A-N-I-D-A-A-N-E. I also have a TikTok account where I talk about very similar stuff to this podcast. If you guys want to check that out, it's Kilani Keeping It Real, K-I-L-A-N-I Keeping It Real, and that's keeping with a G, unlike this podcast without the G. <laughs> And if you guys like this podcast, feel free to hit the follow button up above or subscribe. Really appreciate all of your guys' support as always. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, guys.